Almighty Father, we pray that you would speak to us today by your word, that you would make us alive by your spirit, renewing us in the image of your Son, Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would help us to know our place in the world and that you would bless us in all these created relationships. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Sisters and brothers in Christ, one of my seminary professors used to say that one of the sure signs that we have an inadequate view of God is when we have a deficient view of ourselves as humans and even when we have a deficient view of the creation. As we've looked at these Genesis creation stories, we see that these three things are inextricably linked to each other. God, humans, and creation. And we'll see that when any, any of these three get warped or distorted, our view of ourselves gets out of whack. Our whole theology gets twisted. We see a contrast between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 begins on a grand scale, like a Hollywood epic or a Broadway production. The, scene, the scenery is lavish, it's impressive, the score is magnificent, and the characters seem larger than life. God is portrayed as a cosmic emperor, the architect king of the whole universe, one who speaks and the stars and seas leap to his command. And so the first creation story unfolds like a grand narrative poem. And all the characters, both major and minor, sublimely enter into this dance of creation. It stands in marked contrast to the pagan stories of creation, the pagan myths about the origin of the world, where gods, the gods are seen as limited, the gods are arbitrary and sometimes mean, they appear all too human. This God is shrouded in majesty and mystery. He stands aloof, separate from the world he's created. In contrast to the pagan myths, this creation story teaches us to never confuse God with his creation, that the worship, that the worship of creation is misguided and wrong. And instead, nature is perceived as a gift, here to serve the creator and his creatures with joyful obedience. Finally, in contrast to the pagan stories, we see the creation of human being, both male and female, as the image of God. Not as an accident or a mistake, not as a slave to serve the gods or other superior human beings, but as dignified rulers over the whole creation, as the perfect image of the Creator. All of this was necessary to provide a challenge to the false stories of creation. And so this creation account in Genesis chapter 1 gives us a final corrective to those false visions of the world and of God and of ourselves found in paganism. 
once and for all, Genesis chapter 1 trumps those stories. And we see that the one true God is established as the sovereign Lord over all creation, the transcendent maker of all things. Once and for all, nature is portrayed as servant and not master, not to be worshipped. Once and for all, human beings are given nobility and honor as reflections of their creator. But imagine that the story stops here. Would we, need it, would we know everything we needed to know? The fact that there is this second account in Genesis chapter 2 suggests that there's in fact more to the story if we're going to have a proper understanding of God and God's creation and even of human nature. Genesis chapter 1, if it is the Hollywood epic, then Genesis chapter 2 is home movies. The first creation story, if it's a huge Broadway production, then the second creation story is a Trinity House Theater production. In this drama, that's a good thing. <laughs> In this drama, you get to sit close to the stage, and you know most of the actors. Here, the characters almost leap off the stage. They get in your face. They spill your coffee. You might even have a personal relationship with the director or the playwright. You see, we need Genesis chapter 2 because it brings the story of creation up close and personal. And it assures us that we are an integral part of the whole story. Think about it in terms of the way we worship. I happen to believe that the balanced Christian life requires that we have both worship on a grand scale, a celebration full of pageantry and color and drama, but we also need for our spiritual health worship at a, at a small scale, at an interpersonal scale, with interaction and simplicity and accountability. The sort of thing that occurs in a small prayer group a weekday Bible study, or in a personal discipleship relationship. We need both. And, and together, these two strands of worship contribute to a fuller, more balanced Christian life. If the only worship we have is, on, is the grand celebration, then our spiritual lives tend to become too abstract and impersonal. If all we have is the intimate small group, then we can forget the big picture, we can forget that we're part of something larger than ourselves, and we tend to see ourselves as the center of the spiritual universe. And so both stories of creation accomplish those two strands. If God is only pictured on the epic scale, then we forget the possibility of a personal covenant relationship with him. And if the creation is only viewed as props on the stage, then we lose a sense of personal responsibility for the earth. It's just here to use. If humans are only seen as celebrities, as big actors, then we might deem them higher than they deserve. And so Genesis chapter 2 starts the story of creation over again from a decidedly different angle. In order to provide a counterbalance to the epic scale of chapter 1, we get the rest of the story. This second creation story begins like this, and I want you to note the difference. This is the account 
of the creation of the heavens and the earth. When Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens, there were no plants or grain growing on the earth, for Yahweh God had not sent any rain, and there was no human to cultivate the soil. As people who know the first chapter, several things should jump out at us as we read these few simple sentences. The first thing we should notice is the name change for God. All through chapter 1, God is simply referred to as God, the Hebrew word Elohim. And Elohim is not a personal name. It's simply a designation. This is, there's a kind of distance created by this designation. He is simply the Lord of the universe. And it's a necessary reminder for us that the Creator is not one of us. He is not to be dragged down to our level. We are not to create Him in our image. But chapter 2, verse 4, begins by referring to God as Yahweh Elohim, introducing the personal covenant name of God. And all of this suggests a new level of intimacy, a relationship. No longer is the Creator just a distant ruler. Now he is portrayed as a familiar friend. Let me try to illustrate the difference. Most of you know that I lead a double life. The majority of the time I'm here as pastor of this flock, but part of the time I serve as an adjunct professor. And for some inexplicable reasons, some of those students are, are part of our church family. When I'm on campus, many students refer to me in a professional manner as Professor Van Horn or something like that. Uh, but someone like Nate Holmes or, or Phil Arakalian, uh, who know me as friend and as pastor for many years, properly refer to me as Michael. Sometimes new people at Trinity ask, what am I supposed to call you? And I usually reply, you can call me what my mother calls me. Dr. Van Horn. <laughs> just, just kidding. <laughs> you can see the difference, of course. One designation is formal and distant and cold, somewhat stuffy. The other is personal and friendly. By the way, people call me Michael here. When Genesis speaks of God as Elohim, it wants to emphasize a proper respect and distance between us and our Creator. And that's important. But when it speaks of God as Yahweh, it wants to convey the possibility of a personal covenant relationship. These two things need to be held in balance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that in Genesis 1 we see humans for God. And in chapters 2, we see God for humans. The whole tone of this creation story is intentionally different from chapter 1 so that we can develop a fuller and more nuanced appreciation of who God is and who we are in relationship to him and his creation. And so then notice the next phrase that comes along in this story. It says, when Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. Did you hear that? The first account speaks of God creating the heavens and the earth. It gives us an above perspective. 
But the second account brings us down to earth. It reverses the order. When Yahweh God created the earth and the heavens. This is a literary cue that the orientation of chapter 2 is is dramatically different than that of chapter 1. It shifted from above to below to a second camera angle. And the point is made dramatically in this chapter by the repeated use of what I call earth language. It's peppered all through the text. Listen to the words. When Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens, there were no plants or grain growing on the earth. For Yahweh God had not sent any rain on the earth, and there was no one there to cultivate the earth. But water came up from the earth and watered the whole earth. Are they trying to tell us something? In just about three sentences, we're given some nine different references to the earth or to the ground. And so if chapter 1 teaches us that the creation is here to serve us, chapter 2 reminds us of the real value, the dignity of the earth, that it is central to God's purposes and plan. This might, in fact, be the dirtiest chapter of the whole Bible. Okay? Uh, Sadly, much of the history of Christian thought has tended to view the creation of the earth or the created earth as something to be used up at our will or worse, something to be despised and hated. But the creation story wants to take us in another direction. Not the worship of creation, but to delight in it as a wonderful gift from God. The creation is intended to point us to the Creator. And unless we can learn to respect God's world, we will never be fully right with God. Christian mystic Julian of Norwich writes of the wonder of a thing, of a tiny thing like a hazelnut. She says, In this little thing, I saw three truths. The first is that God made it. The second is that God loves it. And the third is that God sustains it. 17th century poet Thomas Traherne wrote, You never enjoy the world aright until the sea floweth in your veins, till you are clothed with the heavens and crowned with the stars, till you can sing and rejoice and delight in God as misers do in gold as kings in scepters. Until then, you never rightly enjoy the world. When God creates the earth, according to chapter 2, it has dignity and value. And yet, in the story, there are three necessary components that are lacking. Something is missing, and we're told what they are. There are no plants from the ground, there's no water for the ground, and there's no human to work the ground. And as we see God meet these needs in the unfolding of the story, we get a glimpse into the character of God the provider. The earth needs water. So God causes water to spring up in springs from the earth. 
And later, he creates four gigantic rivers all converging in the same place in the Garden of Eden. The earth needs vegetation. So God plants a garden, a park filled with lush green trees and delicious fruit. Imagine how good this story sounds to Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years. Plenty of water, plenty of fruit, lush green trees. In both of these cases, God's provision moves beyond sheer necessity and functionalism to a kind of lavish providence. God isn't required to provide a world filled with abundant beauty, a world that is made of two-thirds water with millions of acres of rainforest. He's not required to do that. He could have made a world that had just enough and no more. But, but open-handed open -handed extravagance is in God's nature. Think about the miracles of Jesus. Jesus isn't just doing magic tricks to impress people with his powers. When Jesus performs these miracles, he's acting like God. He's reminding people of the God of creation, the God who provides. When Jesus turns water into 400 gallons of wine, at a party that has already been going on for several days, when Jesus makes enough bread and fish to feed over 10,000 people with some left over. Jesus is identified. These are miracles of identity. Jesus is identifying himself with God the provider. He's saying, look, you've seen this before. You know only one person who turns water into wine. But under normal circumstances, it takes a bit of time. You've already met the one who multiplies grain and causes fish to spawn. But it usually takes months. Here I am in the flesh. Doing it in an instant. Recognize me. And so the Jesus we've come to know as Redeemer wants us to know him as the Lord of creation, the provider of all things. Colossians tells us that by the hand of Jesus, all things were created, both by him and for him. And he sustains all things, holding them together. C.S. Lewis says that the miracles in fact, are retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters almost too large for some of us to notice. In Jesus, he's making it possible for us to see. At the center of this story of creation, we find human beings. In chapter 1, humans were the capstone of creation. Everything was made before them as the red carpet is rolled out for the imager of God, this pinnacle of God's creative work. But lest, that's all we know of ourselves, lest we develop too high a view of ourselves, begin to think that we are gods. Genesis chapter 2 unveils the other half of the picture. 
And this story is the necessary counterbalance to, this, to our theology of human beings. You're not only created as the image of God, you are also dirt. That's the lesson we learn every Ash Wednesday. Remember, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And according to this text, we humans are created not only for the earth, to work and take care of it, to form and to fill it, but we are created from the earth. We are an integral part of creation. It has become far too easy for us to think about ourselves as somehow aliens in God's created world. We tend to talk about salvation as if it means that someday we will escape the confines of our createdness and our humanness in order to become angels or gods. We sing songs that tell us this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. But the scripture says something else. The scripture reminds us that we are made from the earth and for the earth. That humbling fact keeps our arrogance in check. Reminds us that our destiny is integrally related not merely to God, or not only to God, but to the destiny of the whole creation. And the way we relate to the earth and its resources is directly related to our understanding of who God is and who we are. Consider the way a rock and roll band treats a hotel suite, or how a college student treats a dorm room. If you're just staying for a night, or even for just a few months, then it might make sense to throw televisions out windows or set the furniture on fire. But think of the contrast of how a new homeowner treats her house. Planting flowers, painting, fixing the plumbing, repairing the roof. That's a natural response for someone who expects to stay a while. The sad news is that we Christians have often behaved like college freshmen or the Rolling Stones on tour than we have as caretakers of our created home. And the story of creation intends to challenge that, to challenge our neglect of, of the environment by teaching us that God values his creation and that we are made from it and for it. In fact, the Hebrew gives us a clue. The Hebrew word for human is simply Adam, which is a derivative from the word Hebrew word for earth, Adama. So Yahweh God crafted the Adam from the Adama. What are the scriptures telling us here? That we are earthlings. That we are creatures from and for the earth. And we need to keep in mind that that's not a bad thing. It's just a fact. To be an earthling is to be as God intended. And so there's no biblical justification for our apologies about being creatures. Well, I'm only human. Or I guess that's just human nature. 
fact is, is that, that human nature is what God had in mind all along for us. And we will always be humans. Always. In fact, God approves humanity so much that he chose to become human himself in order to rescue these broken imagers. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, God permanently declares his solidarity with humanity. He becomes part of the human cause by taking on flesh, by becoming a creature formed from the dust of the ground. That intimate relationship that we find in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, is echoed already in the creation story. Because notice the intimacy of the creation account in chapter 2. God doesn't merely command the human being into existence. You get the image of God getting down on his hands and knees in the dirt, taking handfuls of clay in order to make something unique. This is a God who is willing to get his hands dirty in order to make us. And then God performs this intimate act of resuscitation, breathing into our nostrils the breath of life. And this is what it takes to make a human being. This passionate work of God, the artist, shaping God, the parent, breathing into us giving us something from below and something from above, both simultaneous reminders of our dignity and our humility. The rise of modern psychology has caused most of us to become more fully aware of the concept of self-image. And yet, as a sign of our fallenness, we continue to search for sources of a good self-image in all the wrong places, anywhere, but here in the biblical story. And so we end up either apologizing for our createdness, pardon my dust, or we start to think of ourselves as all too important. You shall be as gods. And the wonder of our sinful condition is that, is that we're somehow able to simultaneously have too high a view of ourselves and too low a view of ourselves. The challenge from the scriptures is to come back to God's view of us, created as the image of God and made from the dust of the earth. Intention, these two truths are the key to a proper image of the self. And it's only as we come to appreciate that we are loved by God just as we are made. God loves our creatureliness. It's only as we come to appreciate that love that we'll be free to get on the, with the business of living a full and abundant life. Brendan Manning asks, Why are we afraid that God won't love us as we are? 
My sense is this, that if we let the love of God run wild in our lives, we're afraid of what he's going to demand of us. But all our crazy fears have nothing to do with the real God who takes delight in his people. When I've not had the experience of being loved by God, just as I am and not as I should be, then loving others becomes a duty, a responsibility, a chore. But if I let myself be loved as I am, with the love of God poured into my heart by the Holy Spirit, then I can reach out to others in an effortless way. Have you allowed yourself to be loved? Will you risk letting God breathe on you? Risk letting God go wild within you? God really wants to come close to empower you with his life. The God who made you, who gets down on hands and knees to forge you from the clay, the God who comes close enough to breathe his life into your lungs, that same God truly loves you as you are. And he wants you to share in his joy forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.